everyone. Welcome to the B++ podcast, a podcast where we talk to technology leaders. We talk about interesting technology solutions from around the world that different organizations can implement. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've spoken to a number of uh, very interesting individuals, founders of companies, CEOs from different spaces, from events tech to social media analytics uh, to you know business matchmaking. And today, we are very happy and honored to have a very distinguished guest. We have uh, Lee Smith, who is the CEO of Logit.io, a platform used by engineers around the world to improve how they handle error resolution, data analysis, uh, and of course, you know, team collaboration. And uh, Lee, very happy to have you here on the podcast today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, a lot of uh, our listeners are, you know, business people and, you know, like decision makers, C-level executives, and of course, startup founders. So uh, I myself uh, am not a technology person. I believe that you have a vast technology experience. So maybe uh, for, you know, non-techies like us, maybe what's the best way that you would describe your product and how is it solving the problem for organizations? Sure, thanks. So one of the things from a non-technical point of view is we are trying to reduce risks and um, problems and improve exposure of your internal infrastructure to your own company. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is a lot of information is held within your company where people don't realize necessarily realize that they may be exposed to particular breaches. Security is a big one at the moment where everyone has seen what happened with some large organizations where they've had data breaches. But that's only a slither of the platform in the sense of there's a Mm -hmm. lot of value in the data that you have as a a company. And unlocking that data is becoming more important. So using our platform, you can kind of do a lot of analysis on your data to understand what, A, you know, typical um, e-commerce platform um, may launch some new software. And if you're not keeping an eye on your software, you might have an increase in uh, failure rates for your checkout, for example, Mm -hmm. Uh, or or increased card declines in a particular area of the world or whatever that might be. But um, being able to understand that information very quickly and getting alerted into that information very quickly can save you a lot of money in the long run in multiple folds. Your customers, um, continue to be satisfied because they don't encounter errors Mm -hmm. Um, your development teams and your operations team know how to handle and manage problems more effectively and faster which causes a faster uh, mean time for resolution so um, making life a lot easier so um, while there's a bit of a journey to get set up with us um, Mm -hmm. a lot of the common stuff the common technologies we're no problem with but we, we provide a bit of a custom solution where uh, consumers or customers come on board and we, we kind of understand what the, what you need as a business. Um, and once we understand what you need as a business, we can then help you get out of the platform and ultimately out of your data what you need. But at the same time, it's a self-service platform. So if you have engineers that like to do what they need to do without speaking to us, they can mm-hmm. do that as well. So there's a right. bit of a hybrid model there. So customers can come on board, understand their data and really start ensuring that they're making the right decisions based on the information that you already have. You might not just have it in one place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as they say, data is the new oil or, you know, maybe oil is already, (laughs) maybe we should say data is the new Bitcoin or something (laughs) because maybe, yeah. So, 
Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's fascinating, right? I think one of the, some of the things that you mentioned there in terms of, you know, not knowing the risks within the organization, you know, that's, that's huge. And, you know, we work with so many organizations and some really large organizations and global organizations. And sometimes I'm just absolutely baffled at how little they know in terms of some of these potential risks and, and, and you know, they, 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 they aren't doing much about it. So, and, and, and also that you mentioned that it can be a bit of a plug and play model and then also can be a hybrid model. So obviously when organizations want to engage a bit more with you, and then in that case, do you sort of, does your sort of tech team engage with their teams and try to understand what the challenges are on the processes front or the data front and then sort of customize the solution? How, how does that work? So there's kind of the two models. The first one you touched on where customers can sign up if they've got an understanding of what they want out of the box, they can pretty much get started within about five minutes, start sending us some data and then starting to build out what they need in the platform. We provide mm-hmm. a lot of defaults, a lot of, you know, getting started guides, source wizards where they can just come on board or data integrations where they, uh, let's call it a web, a web server logs. They send the web server logs. It parses it for you already, gives you mm-hmm. some structure, some dashboards. And so you get a lot out of the box for free. When it comes to some of the larger organizations that, don't necessarily even know what they have and when they don't when I'm, what I mean by what they don't, don't know what they have is they don't necessarily have the expertise of all of the technology that they have they might have a good understanding of their estate their installation their service all of that good stuff um, because that's what they do day to day what they might not have is necessarily the ability to translate some of the raw data into what we call structured data because the power of of data is written in structured format so that you can understand it. So machine learning, artificial intelligence, all, all of them kind of buzzwords that are going around in the industry at the moment, I would say, or been around for a right. while, to be fair. Um, mm-hmm. So alerts, you know, increased errors. So when it comes to large organizations that we work with the tech team to understand, A, what the problems are, first of all. One of the biggest things, you know, someone gets told, hey, we need some centralized login or we need something for compliance we're trying to get some compliance or we've been told we need this by a a consultancy firm that they've brought in right sometimes depending on the type of organization it might not be a tech first organization so they may only have a small tech company but they've got a large revenue so tech department for example because they're just growing so fast and they don't know so we we can help support them get what they need at the same time so they don't have to learn the nooks and crannies of kind of log management, server metrics. They don't necessarily want to learn how to do it. They just want to know how to use it. So there's a bit of a hybrid model, and that would be the hybrid model. And and sometimes customers fit in the middle. You know, sometimes they're like, "We, we know what we want to do. We've done this before ourselves. We don't want to do it anymore. We want you to do it. Um, but we still don't want to give it up completely so that you, so we give the ability to be able to have a bit of both so they can still tinker and play themselves, but they still got the support of our team. Right. Right. And, and so who's your uh, target customer in an organization? Do you work a lot with CTOs? Is it the, you know, business people who are more involved? Do they identify what the problem is, but they don't really quite know what the solution is or does it have to be, somebody with great technology background to come in and say, okay, this is the problem. We need to get structured data and, you know, so that we can sort of monetize that data or at least handle that data or manage that data better. So who, who, who is the person who's 
speaking with you the most? Typically, it's technology-focused kind of um, leadership. But the spectrum can be quite wide because the solution is a a log management platform. It's also it's an analytical platform. Realistically, that's what it does. So, so we've seen over the years it change, but traditionally it's been actually kind of developer operations led who've then gone to their CTO and said, hey, we really need this tool because it's really going to help us do our jobs. And then what's happened is, is over the last couple of years, um, you know, C-level organizations have started to understand that this is actually becoming more of a thing. It's not like being led by tech anymore. It's been led by business. And what that means is where, you know, compliance, auditing, regulations that are coming in you know gdpr wasn't a big one in europe it, it, it was just another kind of strengthening but they were things which brought, brought it more onto the sea level um kind of so there may be directives coming from the top, the board levels and sea levels but typically we would engage with ctos um system managers operation managers anyone who's got a responsibility around oper- operationally side of the business, but also the technology side of the business is typically right. where we've we've engaged. Right. Um, and at different levels of expertise in what they need. So sometimes we'll get someone that doesn't really know the technical implementation, but they know the problem that they need. So we talk about the problem that we solve and then we engage and then we make sure that technically it's what they actually want when we get fur- further down the line with their teams. Right. Okay. And and Lee, tell us a bit more about your journey. I mean, you, as you were mentioning, you've been in the software industry for the last 20 years. So what prompted or what inspired you uh, to get into, you know, to basically start with login.io? What problem did you see or was it something more personal? Uh, what, what got you to this point? So I was working uh, consultant for an organization at the time um, as a, kind of software engineer that's kind of my core background um and to not bore you with 50 uh, the first 10 years they were learning the industry (laughs) and and programming and and doing all of that good stuff but um turned into doing some consultancy and was working with an organization at the time who who had a problem well they didn't even know they had a problem is probably the right Right. way to say it they they had lots of servers they had lots of logs they had but they had zero visibility if there was a deployment of software they didn't really know there was a problem if a server was offline they might have got a raw alert but they didn't really anticipate a problem or see that so we kind of um worked on the hosted elk so elasticsearch log slash cabana when it was very much you know a lot younger than what it is now it's a bit more of a mature product there's a lot going on in that space recently but that's a different discussion um so we brought it on board and then I inst- it basically installed that software into the into that organization and thought, well, this is, it, it wasn't particularly simple to do, um, but it wasn't necessarily horrifically technical, but you needed to know what you were doing to be able to do it. it was, it's not easy to do. So I thought there's a, so that's where Logit was kind of founded on the thought of going, there must be other organizations that have this problem. So the goal was is to make it simple for someone to be able to get centralized log management metrics out of their solution without them having to do all the work that was needed to be able to get to this point. So that's how it was kind of born. And and the typical startup 
um, self-funded, so working weekends, evenings, you know, kind of side project, which then grew into, you know, it grew organically over the years, which grew into then the company that is today. Um, a lot of difficulties along the way, you know, how do you price it? How do you do this, that, and the other? Typically priced it very low at the start because we did, I didn't, I was an engineer. So then read a lot of stuff around um, other founders and learned along the way and realized that, you know, you can't build a business selling something for $9 a, a month or something like that. It doesn't quite work. And, and companies want a company that is stable, grown. Um, and when, they, when we typically farm in a customer signs with us, it's, it's a number of years that they're with us. It's not like weeks or months. It's years. We actually have customers going back five, six, seven years that have been with us for a long time. Uh, and, you know, that's quite, quite, we're quite proud of that because we end up partnering with these companies. You know, you end up knowing the engineers that are in these companies. Um, and then when they move around, the engineers move around, they actually come and we end up getting installed in their new companies as well because they're so used to the platform. So I've kind of paraphrased 20 years and then paraphrased the last eight years of Logit, but that's kind of where we are today. That's a wonderful story. I mean, because I always say no project is a side project and the fact that you know, what you sort of built while you were still working and the fact that, you know, not only did it turn out to be such a robust product, which solved so many problems, the fact that uh, the fact that it lasted this long and the fact that you mentioned that so many companies have been using it. So uh, congratulations on that. That's absolutely phenomenal. It's so rare, uh, you know, even with all the funding support and everything. In fact, I was talking to another founder a couple of days back and you know they had raised so many rounds and then last week they said well goodbye everyone you know thanks for all the trust and faith and uh, we are you know sunsetting our services and I was really shocked so so yeah. congratulations on doing it all by yourself and the fact that you know starting while you were still working and so uh, you did mention earlier you know the the challenges and of course you know uh, the decision that you made and i haven't met many founders who made that decision i'm one of them so i can completely relate to that so i i i just wanted to hear your thoughts on you know not going after you know vcs and stuff and so what prompted that decision um i suppose to some degree it was organically growing fast enough that the vision was there that this didn't need someone else's money to grow. Now, don't get me wrong. If we'd taken VC five, six years ago, it could be 10 or 100 times bigger than what it is now. Right. We followed some of our competition who've taken funding, and they are, appear on the outside. And it's, so everything's private, so you never really know. Um, right. to, be, to be bigger than maybe what they are and, and who they are. But the, I would say to some degree as well, there was kind of a – we wanted to build a company that was going to be around for, well, I wanted to build a company that was going to be around for a long time. My goal right. wasn't to necessarily get rich and do the Silicon Valley VC model. That's never been our goal. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, the, the goal was to build a company where people could rely on the company to be there for a long time. I'm not anti-VC. I'm not, I also don't have any experience necessarily in raising funds. So that potentially had an impact as well where, I haven't done the seed rounds. I haven't done the funding. Didn't even really know who to contact. In the UK, um, it was not as prevalent as it is in the US to some degree. It's not seen as, in my my working theory and my, you know, what I've read around the UK, it's not as seen to be kind of you invest in these 
kind of mm-hmm. investment funds like it would be in Silicon Valley and, and and America to some degree. It's set up a bit different. So potentially that was one of the reasons in the sense of I didn't really know, but also didn't feel like we needed it. So there's the, that's maybe the trade-off. Could we have grown faster? Potentially, but we've grown pretty quickly anyway. Every year has been a, been a growth year in many different ways, not necessarily just revenue, but team size, people. You know, COVID's obviously been one of the impacts, but we've been largely unaffected. It's been good for us. We've gone fully remote as an organization now, but we wouldn't have been able to do that three or four years ago because we were hiring quite fast and, you know, brought people on onto the team. But there's many different reasons to talk about not going down the funded route if you can help it. So if you're if you've got the ability to be able to see the numbers, see the growth, and you've got a relatively low churn rate, um, that's relevant to SaaS companies. But you know, we had a monthly recurring revenue coming in and it was always growing. Now you lose customers along the way. And I would often say to anyone that's found in a company that be prepared to be on a roller coaster. There's many ups and there's many downs, but I've often said the ups start to get higher and the downs don't get as low. So while they may feel very low, you always try and reflect, where was it two or three years ago? Do you know what? That was re- that felt really bad. This one doesn't feel as bad. And this high is higher than the previous high. And, and hopefully that happens. And, you know, I, from what I've heard is I didn't also want to spend a lot of time chasing funding. I've read a lot where people spend three to six months trying to get funding. We wanted to focus on building a, a business rather than focus on VC. We've had lots of people get in touch about partnerships. Do you want are you invested? Do you want to get in touch with, you know, venture capital or, you know, even private capital capital equity firms have been in touch. And we've typically often I've always had a conversation, but we typically say we're not we're not at that point yet. We don't need um any equity we're we're self financing funding growing. So you know, I don't I don't see that necessarily changing um anytime soon. So we're we're it's about stability um, and then providing one of the other things, providing it twofold for customers and um, they know there's a stable platform. They can rely on us. They know that, like you said to the previous founder, and that's not their fault necessarily, that it, it's disappearing the platform and that can cause an upheaval for companies. And that's actually been one of the things I've had some feedback with some of our customers. They actually quite like the fact that it's profitable self-financing um, for one of them risks alone, because there are some of the customers we spoke to have been burnt in the past um, for many different reasons, um, even in their own in their own organizations, but also our staff as well. They know it's stable. They don't have this volatility of, you know, oh, we've got six months before we're going to run out of cash necessarily or that kind of stuff, you know. So, yeah, that's that's been that kind of reason for not going to VC really. Uh, wonderful. I mean, uh, I many very fascinating things that you said there, and, but three things really uh, strike me. One, uh, like you said, if the platform's growing and if it's profitable, you know, that you don't really necessarily need to re- raise that fund, right? So, and I think what a lot of founders don't realize is the set of problems that it may bring, you know, that outside capital. And of course, you know, like you said, you're not anti-funding or anything, but it's just the way things happened and the fact that you didn't feel the need. And sometimes, you know, when the right VC comes along and things are going great, then they can be a bit of an addition uh, to what yes. you're already doing. And and right. but uh, and where we see so many founders 
who just stop focusing on the product itself and it's all about we need to raise the next round and the next round and the next round and which i think i mean it's a great lesson for all the listeners and especially all the founders you know uh, who sometimes get so enamored by this outside funding the second thing that you said which is uh, you know very interesting is you know the the ups are a lot higher and the downs are <laughs> not so low anymore and i think that's very reassuring for a lot of uh, founders out there because yes it is a roller coaster ride it is you know it's not an easy straight uh, journey and there are a lot of sacrifices involved along the way and and the third thing that you mentioned which i want to sort of you know ask a little more about is you mentioned that how you've gone completely remote so uh just a couple of questions uh, regarding that because you know building a technology business a lot of people don't realize that you know more than sometimes the idea itself is the teams that you know build uh, you know on those ideas so uh you're based in uh, manchester england how has the journey been uh, you mentioned that you've gone remote now so f- how did you sort of hire because that's something that a lot of companies and uh, startups are struggling to deal with and secondly you know how do you make sure that you know i know you have uh, you know a lot of experience in uh, you know agile development and yeah. uh, remote teams personally so did that help out a bit and how how was the journey from being an on site team to a remote team so i suppose the difficulty we we already had an established team before we needed to go remote so we had enough experience within the team already it would have been mm-hmm. a lot harder to do if everyone was fully remote from the start it is harder and i i i recognize that challenge would have been more difficult however mm-hmm. one of the things i would say even before we even go to the remote part as as when you found a found something you have to remember that you aren't the only person that can do something you have to start to let go of things right. so whether that's infrastructure whether that's um, development whether whatever that is um you know marketing seo all of them things that you are particularly good at but when you when i say particularly good at i mean you kind of as a founder you're you're good at a lot of things but maybe not a master of them all that's you know one of the common phrases so when it comes to going remote we were already set up as a company to allow everyone even though we had an office in central location to work remotely so that was always a vision of mine because i always knew for example if a member of staff needed to work from home because they needed to go to a personal appointment for example they they could there's no point in them having the day off or working off if they just need to nip out for an hour and they do, excuse me and don't need to work that day so you lose productivity by not being flexible as an employer but what comes with that is you have to trust your employees to do their job so when you hire smart people or people that are good at what they do um you don't need to well i feel personally that you don't need to watch what they're doing every day because as long as they're delivering in an agile manner the sprints we run sprints two week sprints the pretty standard kind of software development life cycle in agile world but we don't watch people we have core hours um but we had core hours in the office so we were very flexible anyway so the only thing we removed is the need to be in the same location now covid has forced that which maybe opened my eyes a little bit earlier to what would have probably been a naturally effective solution in a couple of years when it comes to hiring new staff we actually haven't hired anyone new in the covid world but i don't see that being a problem because um if you hire the right people and when you're hiring someone you have to trust them yeah so you have to trust that they're going to do their job now there is going to be people that don't do their job potentially or don't work out but in my opinion that doesn't matter whether you're in the office or not 
that you will find that out eventually. And that's the risk of actually hiring. It doesn't matter where you are. The other benefit of being fully remote is we are no longer located to be in a 50-mile radius of here. We open ourselves up to a talent pool of A, the United Kingdom, um, but also further afield, which you know gives us different metrics, you know, America, East, yourselves, and Singapore. And the different different challenges and we already had everything set up remotely so the classic example we use the tools our management tools to be able to manage the agile sprints already in place um so realistically um to answer your question about going remote it's actually been really quite nice because what we've also found is our members of staff who were maybe living in areas um for jobs are now moving to kind of closer to family potentially because they no longer have to be within 30 miles of a city center anymore. Um, right. So their work-life balances, you know, some of our, uh, our staff have got a dog, for example, and, and they would never have got a dog because they had to go into the workplace. So very subtle things. Um, and obviously there's a cost saving for everyone. They don't have to commute. Uh, they don't have to spend an hour each way. So two hours, which is 10 hours a week, which is a working day. They don't have to commute anymore. So there are many benefits outside of that. And, and the core thing about um, a bit, any business is, is, is the staff. You know, while our platform is largely automated and can run itself and doesn't need many engineers to support it, it's always built with automation in mind. It still needs its staff to be able to innovate and develop the platform. So right. just to be clear, our platform is a SaaS platform that doesn't really need engineer input day to day as such. It runs itself. Right. but it still needs engineers to improve the platform. So that's where that we're, we're fortunate that that was always a goal from the very start that it shouldn't need someone to do something on a daily basis because of, you know, many risks, but that's kind of the reason for the remote setup we're at. Cause we largely already were, we just didn't really, or I didn't really realize it. Right. So yeah, I mean, getting a dog is probably the best possible benefit, <laughs> yeah. and probably living in a much larger home away from the city center. Yeah, of course, you know, yeah. and 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 I have a couple of questions, uh, follow up questions based on what you just said. Well, the first thing that you mentioned, you know, about the sprints and you know the agile methodology. So one question that I ask a lot of uh, CEOs and founders. What's your favorite project management tool? <laughs> because there's an ongoing debate about it forever and ever. If I was going to be really honest with you, the tool that works for your company or works for you. So mm-hmm. um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say there's an individual tool that makes your life any better or any easier. Particularly, it, it, the, the first tool I would say is you need to trust people to do their job. Right. So you take take away technology tools, trust people mm. to do their job. Now, obviously, the Zoom, Google Meet, they, they are have become pretty fundamental. Um, mm. And then also um, the ability to chat to each other offline. But mm. a lot of it, it doesn't matter what tool you use, in my opinion. Um, use the tool that works for you at the size you're at, which is another one. Um, so if you're a team of five, team of 10, team of 100, you're going to have different needs. Um, mm. So allowing teams to use the tools that they want to use themselves, you will get more productivity out of it. Um, when it comes to Agile, Agile's changed and my thought process of it, you know, the stand-ups we still do, we do the sprint retrospectives, but the idea of time boxing to two weeks is getting a little bit wary. You know, things happen when they happen. So when you start to trust people, 
mm. the idea of going, how long is this going to take? Well, it will take as long as it needs to take for that person to be able to deliver it. So, so realistically, the idea of we have less meetings, we have less, um, I'm not a fan of meetings anyway, but less meetings and trying to make sure that everyone is just okay. So realistically, when it comes to Agile, um, don't worry about the tool, just make sure it works for you as a team and listen to your team. That's the best tool you've got. That's really insightful. I mean, I always believe that you can get the best possible tool, but if you don't have the right people, you know, nothing's yeah. going to get done in any case. And if you have the really, uh, you know, good people, then the tool doesn't matter. Of course, the tool helps, no doubt about yeah. that. But, you know, and especially, uh, you know, the reason I ask this question, obviously, is the fact that, you know, so many of the, you know, younger developers and everything, they're just uh, so worried about the tool and they're like oh in my previous organization i used to have this tool and i'm always you know wondering i mean a change in tool doesn't change anything right so but yeah i mean so i think that's a that's a that's a uh, that's a wonderful point that you made there you also mentioned something about you know getting people who know better than you right i mean that's what the smart ceos and the smart founders do and and you did touch upon seo and marketing so being a saas platform what has worked for you from a marketing perspective and what are you looking to do, uh, you know, going forward? So this is a really interesting one because um, for years um, we kind of was very tech focused and what I mean by tech focused, engineer focused. And we didn't really have any UI UX and we didn't have mm-hmm. anyone in the marketing role. So we kind mm-hmm. of, for the first four or five years, didn't hire in that space. Mm-hmm. And that would have been, a, if I look back on it, that was probably a mistake. Um, mm-hmm. Not giving marketing or UI UX enough time. And what I mean by that is, is we've done 95% engineering, 5% or 4% UI UX and 1% marketing. And just was a little bit lucky along the way. So it was organic. We kind of just grew by the fact that we were working on a hosted ELK platform. So Elasticsearch Log slash Cabana. We also grew on the popularity of the tool um, and the open source side of it as well. Uh, just to be very clear. Um, so when it came to, it came apparent that I could no longer ignore to some degree marketing SEO, UI, UX, and they would have been outside of my comfort zones. So what I mean by that is is the fact that I was just always engineer-led. So it always felt really easy to go back to doing engineering. You know, I knew it really well. I knew a lot of the problems. Whereas when it comes to marketing different channels, um, UI, UX, I've got a good understanding of UX, but I'm not, I I can't, you know, it's well known within the company that I have zero UI skills. Uh, You know, I can't, I can't make things look very nice. And we have now fortunately hired someone who, who does a better job, better job of that than me. So, um, and again, with the marketing and SEO, um, it really is a full-time role. And, and we, we've fortunately brought people into the business that are doing that full-time. So Eleanor, who's also listening in on the call is doing that full-time. So, um, giving people that ability to do it is, is the goal. And also we've replaced largely some of the engineering teams and the operations side. I don't do it anywhere near as much as I used to because I'm now trying to move into the role of letting, letting other people do it because you reduce the risk. One of the things I'd say to any founder that was there is that you, if you don't reduce the risk of you not being there, um, my sole goal is if I'm not there, the company still runs. 
because if I'm ever on holiday, you know, it's nice to have a holiday when we're not in COVID, but that's a different problem. Um, but, you know, if you're off sick or anything or any reason you don't feel very well, you've got other people and you, that's how you build a company. So carving out the roles that you like to do or don't want to do is really important, but it's really hard to let go. Um, don't underestimate if you're hiring someone, you just have to let go and understand that they need to a, learn the role, understand, give them a bit of time. But then once they learn the role and you give them and you let them give them a bit of freedom, you know, don't try and constrain them into what you're doing. So, you know, and that works wonders. That's a, that's a very interesting thing you said. Uh, you know, I speak with a lot of founders and the, the most common thing that I've discovered is a founder's never happy with his or her replacement, right? In the sense that it's just, you know, you just, you can't stop yourself from jumping right in and say, let's do it you can, this way. Yeah, that's right. You, you can still do that, but you have to do it in a way of respectfully that, you know, it, you've got to remember, I, so if I said to you seven or eight years of running log it, I know the company inside out. When someone comes new on board, they may not know. They just don't have the same domain knowledge. and that It's impossible to transplant your knowledge into someone else. What you'll find, though, over a year period, when they get a little bit more confident, they understand the business a little bit more, they will start to go, do you know what? And always be, always make sure that they've got the ability to say, no, I think that's a bad idea. What you don't want to do as a founder is be forceful and say, this is it, because then you're just not really replacing that role with something. You've got to allow people to bring their experience and also their thoughts into the role. So, you know, you've got to be scared to let people, not be scared to let people push your boundary a little bit as well. It's very easy to stay in your comfort zone. So by that nature of what you're saying, no one can ever do the job as well as you. I disagree, but the feeling is there 100%. You've got to override that feeling. Do you know what? Let's have a go. Absolutely. I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's just, I think it's not so much the skill and the ability, but I think uh, the relationship that you build with your company, and then it's like you mentioned a few times, it's very difficult to let go. But the trick is obviously Mm -hmm. to let the other person be and, you know, not really uh, come in the way and tell them how to do their job, right? So that's, that's, that's very important. So is, is there something uh, you know, specific that you see when you're hiring people is there, you know, we talk about, you know, attrition rates are very high in the technology industry. Uh, you know, there are so many opportunities. There's a serious demand and supply mismatch. Uh, then, of course, there could be geographical boundaries, not so much in your case anymore. But uh, what do you see in people when you're hiring them? I mean, other than maybe, say, a code test or, you know, their experience, is there something that, you know, X factor that you look for when you're hiring? If they're going to kind of, um, so everyone can learn. To, so you've got to remember when you hire someone that they don't, they may have some skills and skill sets, but they don't necessarily have the skill set exactly what you're looking for. And that's mm-hmm. normally the case with most hires. I've hired a lot of people over the years. Mm-hmm. What you're looking for is someone who wants to learn, um, enjoys a bit of freedom at the same time. So you don't want to micromanage and every company, different so some people like to be micromanaged and directed but that's not what we're necessarily looking for we're looking for people that want to be able to do their job get on with it and not feel like they're being watched you know it's important so it really comes down to the individual rather than the skill set now while the skill set matters i'm not underlying the skill set employing smart people but typically you can find enthusiasm wanting to learn 
and the ability to be able to be trusted, um, which you learn very early on when you hire people, if you can trust them long-term or not, um, is probably one of the main factors I, we, we would look at when we're hiring people. It's not necessarily their underlying direct skill set. While that obviously is a core foundation, um, you know, they need to have a core level of feature, but you can learn that on the job to some degree as well. Um, you know, being able to communicate effectively um, is another one as well. So they would be the core couple of, you know, a couple of skill sets. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, all of them are quite important. The ability to communicate and like you said, you should be able to trust them. Uh, enthusiasm, which is in shorter supply these days. <laughs> and, and you know, the willingness to learn, mm-hmm. which is an absolutely must, absolute must in every sector especially uh, in tech because things are moving so uh, quickly and it's important that, you know, like you rightly said, you know, we've seen, you know, people coming with different technology stacks and, you know, we've seen the difference, just the attitude makes somebody can just simply say, Oh, that's too much for me. I don't know this. And they can start complaining about the situation or they can say, give me a few days and give me a few weeks and let me try and figure this out. And even if they don't succeed, you know, is that is the attitude is the, energy that rubs off on everyone around them and that that makes yeah, uh, such right. a difference yeah yeah, yeah it does. so it makes a big difference yeah great so the other thing you mentioned a bit about you know ui ux and now that you're focusing a lot more uh, on that so uh, does that mean that you're trying to take you know logit.io a bit more mainstream i mean if that's the right term or basically just make it a bit more acceptable or a bit more sort of desirable for people who may not be hardcore engineers or, uh, you know, technology professionals, or is it just a natural progression in the product's evolution? A little bit of both. One of the things that we're focused on is to make sure that the tool is easy to use because it's Mm -hmm. such a technical tool or can be such a technical tool. Right. And not always technical people will use it once it's in place. You want to try and make it easy for someone to use and explain. So, when I talk about UI, UX, they are the, the user experience of kind of signing up, for example, and getting started is really important to make sure that users don't get lost. Um, right. And then the UI is also from a marketing point of view of changing the outlook of the company so that it doesn't feel like it's a startup anymore. Because we're not, I suppose to some degree, we are a startup in the way we work, but we're not a startup because we've been going for seven or eight years and we, we don't have as many risks, but every business has risks, I appreciate. But we don't have the immediate risk of we're going to run out of money in three months, for example, you know, or, or the VC risk. We, we, it's a different risk set now is all I'd say. So stabilizing the platform, maturing the platform, creating some style guides and understanding where, you know, if you're creating a similar page to one that's done before, you don't have to go and do the same design process because it's already been done before so working a bit smarter is maybe the other way right. to say it as well right and then also trying to actually solve the user's problems so one of the things that a lot of people don't do from very early on is maybe talk so one of the advices i give the founders is speak to your customers as much as you can mm. you know um, find out what their problems are um, if you've got problems in your product or platform well, everyone has, but more so at the start. You want to know what they are and you prioritize and fixing them. You will get a lot of um, leeway off your customer base or your people who are trialing it if you said, I will help you. 
you know, to create the deficiencies in your platform or your software. If you help someone, they understand that, you know, no, nothing's perfect in the software world. But, you know, there's nothing more frustrating when you try and ask for some support and it just goes to a dead end and you leave. That's what happens. So that that's hard in its own right. So I we still do a lot of customer support, speak to customers, find out what their problems are. And sometimes they just don't know that you can solve that problem because, A, you're marketing, you haven't brought up the speed or it's a new feature you've just released. So sometimes yeah. you just need to tell people what the problem is and, and, how, to, and how to fix it. Yeah. So I mean, that's a, UI, UX. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a great insight. Again, uh, you know, the fact that I think the whole idea of, you know, continuing to work on the UI UX is also the fact that, uh, you know, especially for a technology product and, you know, so it doesn't intimidate people as much sometimes, you know, it's just that uh, I've seen uh, with some new emerging technologies and, you know, there are the, the resistance, you know, the, the resistance to try it out is sometimes not based on the fact that people don't believe in it, but it's just some sort of a fear. It's just the fact that, you know, it's, it seems a bit more intimidating. So I think, yeah, that's, that's definitely something, you know, I think will be great in terms of you improving the UI UX constantly. And, you know, the second thing uh, that you mentioned there in terms of uh, listening to your customers and speaking to them as much as possible, because that is something that, a lot of organizations uh, either just don't do or, you know, they don't do it enough, right? So I was speaking to this uh, CEO, you know, right out of uh, school, raised a few million dollars, built a product. And, you know, the first time I remember meeting him and I said, it's a wonderful product, but it's not a business. It's not a company. And he, he and I wasn't trying to be discouraging mm-hmm. and I was just trying to tell him. And I said, why don't you speak to your customers and just try to see how, you can sort of tweak this to turn it into a more of a business. And, and, you know, unfortunately he and his co-founders did not, and you know, uh, 16 months later, the company didn't exist. Right. So, so again, I think that's, that's a great piece yeah. of advice for all the founders listening in, you know, it's important that you always speak to your customers, try to solve their problems and just see, you know, and sometimes just educating them about, you know, the new features that you might have added that that's going to help them, like Lee said. So uh, moving on, I mean, other than UI UX, what's ahead for you from a product uh, point of view and personally for 2021? What is it that you're looking forward to other than the vaccine, of course? <laughs> yeah, um, taking COVID out of this. So, yeah, so we're trying to um, really make it easy for companies and we have been striving for years to make log it a platform where someone can come on board and not meet, need it to be as technically focused while there's an initial technical setup and actually um, over the years we've actually found that log it is being used in different ways as well it's not just log management it's not just metrics sometimes it comes down to actually fund uh, managing some of their applications we found some of our customers are starting to ask to white label log it so you know, they want to be able to sell it to their customers internally or um, they may be a platform themselves. So there's a little bit of that where I've been speaking to some customers and they are like, we really like Logger as a platform. We want to be able to, um, you know, kind of resell Logger a little bit, um, gain partnerships, speak with other larger organizations that, you know, maybe don't know we exist. So one of the goals this year is to try and get more exposure for Logger because we're a very, we believe we're a very good company. We solve a very good problem um, for a lot of organizations. They just don't know we exist. So 
if there was any challenge that we would have this year is not a technical challenge this year. It's going to be exposure, really. So trying to increase the exposure. We've tried the Google AdWords and the other things, but that's not, I'm not a massive fan of Google AdWords and that kind of stuff. I actually prefer to build relationships with organizations, you know, consultancy firms to say, look, you know, if you send a consultant in, they can speak to us. And, and that kind of model really is uh, where we're moving. While also technically evolving the platform to make it even easier for customers to use. So that's kind of where we're at. I mean, I think uh, you, again, touched upon something very interesting, which, you know, I've heard again and again from so many technology leaders about the fact that, you know, Google ads may not be the right way to promote your product. Uh, and especially if your product is quite evolved, even search engine optimization may not be the right way because uh, people are not searching for those problems to be solved because they may not even know these problems exist. So I think, you know, you probably have to take a sure. different approach as a as a founder, you uh, more exposure, like you mentioned, building a bit of a relationship, public relations, uh, you know, LinkedIn, some of those tools. And, and yeah, I mean, sounds uh, wonderful. And despite COVID, it seems like uh, login.io is headed in the right direction. Uh, yeah. And uh, what, what, what's uh, in store for you? I mean, in terms of uh, personally, where are you looking to head out to as soon as borders open up and one doesn't have to quarantine to go from one part of the world to the other? Is there something that you are uh, anxiously waiting for? Uh, not really, actually. Because um, when I say that is in the sense of, um, I actually don't think it will happen in 2021, personally. I think it's still going to be a tough year. I think um, making sure that um, the, the main priority for myself this year is making sure all of our staff are okay, everyone's working effectively, everyone's okay, because we're now in the UK back in quite a strict lockdown. So making sure that everyone's okay. There's a lot of um, turmoil around the world at the moment. So realistically, it's stabilisation. Um, Travelling, maybe somewhere a bit warmer than Manchester. It's kind of raining and, uh, and a cold winter um, or cool winter. It's not cold. Depends what part of the world you're in. If you're in Sweden and stuff like that, it's cold, but it's not that cold, but it's, it's quite wet. So yeah. maybe somewhere that's a little bit warmer. Um, but again, at the same time, because we're a remote company, we don't, we aren't stuck to um, homes as such. So we do have that benefit. So um, I probably would say I haven't really had a full holiday for a number of years but that doesn't mean that I've not been away and disconnected. But at the same time, you know, as a founder, you're in it for the long term. So you don't really necessarily have what I class as a holiday where you go two weeks and do it. But that's not me anyway. So um, we don't we don't tend to do that. So but um, yeah, going back to it, um, just looking to grow, um, solidify more relationships, enjoy uh, and enjoy the fact that we're we're in an industry that's fairly, you know, we've not been as impacted as much as COVID as some other industries. So sometimes it takes a time to reflect as a founder and you sit back and go, do you know what? It could be a lot worse. So maybe that's some advice I'd give to some people listening that things can be a lot worse than what they actually are. That just helps you go, do you know what? It's not too bad. It might feel really bad, but it's not always that bad. Well, on that lovely note, I must thank you, Lee Smith, for joining us. That was truly inspiring. Thanks for sharing your insights. Congratulations on all no the problem. success and wish you a super successful 2021 and way beyond 2021 as well. Thank you so much.